0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. All right, Romans chapter 12, second sermon in this series, We Are Family. Twenty Over 20 years ago, when I was in college, I... Had a broken down car while I was on campus and I needed to borrow somebody's car to get back home. And it was around this time. It was winter time. It was really cold. And so one of my football buddies was like, hey, man, you can borrow my car. And he's like, hey, and just so you know, though, the speedometer is broken and the heater doesn't work. (laughs) And it was freezing outside. It was like sub zero temperatures. Like, all right, man, I'll use it. I got to get back anyways. And it's a two and a half hour drive. And so I did that I made it down to Springfield just fine. And then after my visit here, I had to go back up to Marshall, Missouri. And, uh, I mean, on the edge of town about to make it into Marshall, I get pulled over by a police officer and I am literally, literally shivering inside the car. It is that cold. And the police officer <laughs> knocking on the window, roll it down, sees me just doing this number and he says, Why don't you come inside my car? (laughs) And so I literally got out and got to sit in the front seat of the police car and warm up. And so I was thankful for that. There were some warm interactions, greetings, and he still gave me a ticket. (laughs) I was like, come on, man. Surely. I mean, I told him everything. The speedometer's broken. I'm freezing. Didn't matter. But looking back at it, he was right. To give me a ticket. I I broke the law. I was going about 10 over. I didn't know I was, but I was going about 10 over. But even in that interaction, he was kind towards me, warm in his disposition to invite me into the car. We made small talk. And, of course, it was an unnatural environment to develop a relationship from that point on. But I felt comfortable and relaxed enough. I even felt confident enough, like, I wooed this guy out of giving me a ticket. But that didn't happen. And despite how warm and inviting and engaging the conversation and the relationship was for those few minutes, there was still opposition. It was his conscience versus mine. (laughs) And at the end of the day, he wins. And I got a speeding ticket. The church at Rome in the time of the Apostle Paul struggled. They struggled in its warmth reception of one another. You had literally two cultures colliding. You had this formerly religious Jews, now Jewish Christians, and formerly pagan Gentiles, now Gentile Christian, coming together. During this time, there was a, this unsettling tension between the Jews and Rome. They didn't get along. And now Christianity enters in, and the tension has become a little bit more. And for those who have been converted to Christianity, there's now some reason for the the people to come together and be unified together. Rome is against us, but we have one another. But there was further tension. What they thought maybe would bring them together, even as the world was against them, you began to see as the onion was peeled back and the layers peeled back that there were, they were actually at odds with one another yet two different cultures, two different backgrounds trying to live under the same roof. If you will, you had the Jewish Christians now trying to bring in the old Testament law, figuring out what of this still applies today. And here's, here's what needs to apply. And these Gentile Christians need to still adhere to X, Y, and Z law. And the pagan Gentiles, now Christian, is sitting here going, I don't think that's right. I don't think I need to do that. And so there was tension now within the church. And this church in Rome that was now to signify unity and and what it looks like has really become no different of an expression of the hostility that was existing already outside of the church. Imagine if that police officer and I had gone to the same church. (laughs) I guarantee I would have been asking the question, why couldn't you just allow me off the hook given this circumstance? I mean, seriously, I couldn't control the environment. He would have probably responded in saying that he was obligated to follow the very letter of the law despite the situation. Our relationship could have possibly been driven and guarded by that law, by personal opinions, by philosophy in the application of that law, and how it should or should not have been in that situation. Paul sees in this church the tension. He sees it. It's not that they don't love each other. They love each other, but man, these tensions are hot and they're constantly before them and they're distracting. A people who are perhaps a group of people misunderstanding the law and the customs driving a wedge between them and their new now Gentile brothers in the faith. But then even for the Gentile brothers in the faith are now becoming, I would see, it seems perhaps having an arrogant poise against the Jews thinking that I don't need to submit to any of that stuff. But Paul works hard in this letter to the church of Rome. It's an extensive letter. It's a long letter. It's a meaty letter. It's a rich letter trying to show the church that they are to see and love one another as Christ sees and loves them. If we were to take a kind of an overview, a 40,000 foot flight over the book of Romans, here's what we would see. We would see the gospel at work. Paul always, if you read his letters, he usually starts with a heavy theology that is who is god and what is god doing and these rich theological concepts and then about halfway through the letter or a little after he then spells out its application what does what do these things about god have to do with christian living and that's essentially what you have here in the book of romans the gospel in chapters 1 through 4 reveals to the church at Rome that God is righteous and that through the gospel, both Jew and Gentile are equally guilty, but Jesus makes them equally righteous by faith. This is what the gospel is teaching. The gospel in the book of Romans teaches us in chapters 5 through 8 that God creates a new humanity. We talked about this several weeks back in Romans chapter five for a moment about the first Adam. That is the Adam in the book of Genesis who seemingly messed everything up. But there is this second Adam, Adam 2.0 who comes in and he does what the first Adam could not do. And now this second Adam, namely Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity. And in him, you become a new creation. Doesn't matter if you're Jew. Doesn't matter if you're Gentile. By faith in him, you are now made new. Paul teaches us the gospel in the book of Romans in chapters 9 through 11. Fulfills God's promise to Israel. And ultimately that ethnic Israel does not equal Israel. Faith in Jesus makes one Israel Jews who had now turned to Jesus would become true Israel. But at the same time, Paul makes it very clear that the Gentiles need to remain humble towards the Jews, considering they were God's people and that they should be thankful and worshipful that God has grafted them into the body. And lastly, the gospel in the book of Romans teaches us in chapters 12 through 16 that the gospel unifies the church. This is where we get the nuts and bolts, the practice of this heavy, rich, beautiful theology that Paul lays out in the first 11 chapters. That both Jew and Gentile come together by faith in Jesus. So all the cultural and interpretive uh, tensions around the law will begin to be spelled out a little bit more in its application. That's why you have the chapters on the weaker and the stronger brother. That's why you have a chapter or devotion to honoring and submitting to governing authorities. There's all this confusion. How do we do this as Gentiles, now Christians, as Jews, now Christians? So Paul calls them to a Christ-centered love and a Christ-centered way of living and behavior that loves one another. And that love then expresses itself in the surrounding community. This is the gospel of the book of Romans. I like to refer to chapter 12 as kind of this hinge chapter. He takes what is laid out and he says, here's how you put it into practice. And this chapter highlights the diversity of gifts within the body. It calls one another to live them out. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, extrovert, introvert. It doesn't matter. You have the gifts and you're to exercise these gifts out within the body. And further, Paul draws the church to Christ-like, Christ-centered behaviors that distinguish them as the people of God. Because I would say, With all the infighting and the tensions, they don't really look too different than the world. But Paul's saying, here's how you look different than the world. Here's who you are now in Christ. And these are what we see, even in our text here, subheaded as the marks of a Christian. These are marks that bring the church together in their behaviors towards one another and the world. Not exclusively, but in the very least in our relationship to one another and the world. This is how the church stands out in Rome. So today's Mark, today's passage in verses 9 through 21 begins with love. Genuine love. Followed by abhorring evil, clinging to what is good, and brotherly affection. Love is a virtue that is sourced From God's heart. We spoke about this last week out of 1 Thessalonians. It is a love that sacrificially loves. Not because the recipients of this love are deserving or worthy of this love. But because God is love. And he has chosen to love. Love is the very virtue that ought to motivate and fuel all of our Christian behavior. When you take that love and add to it something like. Affection or brotherly affection, what you now have is a love that is warmly devoted. That's the literal definition of affection here this warm devotion. And that's exactly what the church in Rome needed. Because as it seemed, all this church did was fight about their differences and understanding the Old Testament and the law whether they can eat certain meats or how they need to respond to the governing authorities, all this infighting attention, constant distractions, not acting Christ-like in their behaviors towards one another because they were holding strong to their philosophical opinions. From the outside looking in, it was hard to find what the church really had to offer. And There was no descriptive here in the church of Rome like we see in Acts chapter 2, where everybody, all the onlookers, were in awe and wonder at what they were seeing in Acts chapter 2. You don't see that with the church of Rome. Warmth. That's our focus. Last week was love. This week, warmth. Warmth is an excellent word for us to understand how family is to be experienced and expressed under a healthy understanding of the gospel. The gospel should lead the church to be welcoming, inviting, loving. This is the affection the church is to have for one another and ultimately the world. What we have here in chapter 12, verses nine through 21 is a list of 13 exhortations, 13 ranging from loving Christians to being hospitable to strangers. It almost appears when you look at it that Paul just kind of threw a bunch of exhortations out, just a laundry list of things, of do's and don'ts, right in the middle of the chapter. But I think he was a little bit more strategic. I think the Spirit was leading him a little more focused than that. In fact, Paul really kind of creates a couple subcategories in how we relate to one another and how we relate to the world. Christian behavior among the church... And the world can't really always be defined in this rigid grouping. But I'm going to take these two paragraphs here. And I'm going to create these groups. But I want to do it with a caveat. Knowing that the behaviors that we will see towards one another and towards the world are often overlapping. These exhortations, each one in and of itself is worthy of a full sermon. And I am not going to go through all 13 exhortations. Exhortations and give a full-length sermon on each of those. But I would like today to show you two ways that Paul teaches us that we are to be a family that is warmly devoted. First, we'll see in verses 9 through 13 that we are a family that is warmly devoted to loving those who love Jesus. A family that is warmly devoted to loving those who love Jesus And in verses 14 through 21, that we are a family that is warmly devoted to blessing those who hate Jesus. A family that is warmly devoted to blessing those who hate Jesus. So verse first, nine through thirteen, a family warmly devoted to loving those who love Jesus. Let me read nine through thirteen again. Let love be genuine. This is a true love that is free from all pretense and hypocrisy. Free from all pretense and hypocrisy, meaning it's not fake. It's not playing around. It's not one way to your face, and then when you're gone, it's completely different. This is genuine love. And why? Because this is the love of God, sourced from God, who himself is love and is genuinely loving. And like God, this love abhors evil. Abhor meaning to regard with disgust or hatred. That is what is evil, that is immoral or wicked. And instead this love marries itself, clinging to what is good. That's what it means to be genuinely loving. And this is necessary for us to see in our time uh, this morning... Because genuine love, while it is warm and inviting and kind, it also abhors evil. And yet, while it abhors evil, the warm love of God leads us to, and we'll see this later on, to blessing and praying for those who persecute the church. And also to submit to and honor those who are far from God a bit of a paradox. It's difficult because it seems in our way of thinking, there has to be, it has to be one way or the other. We tend to think in categories systematically in boxes. Well, it's either this way or it's that way. It can't be both. Well, it can, (laughs) but it's all rooted in genuine love. Paul shows us that God's love is paradoxically Genuine. Righteously angry towards evil, grasping with all that it has to what is good and is sacrificially blessing and honoring those who practice evil. This love is always considering and counting others more worthy than yourself, even if that other is a lost person. So genuine love sets the tone for all of these marks. And especially here with brotherly affection or this warm devotion to the Christian community. And so we are to be genuinely loving to one another with, he says, brotherly affection. And so how does Paul see this warm devotion play itself out among the church family? Just in the ways I've I've mentioned, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, outdoing one another and showing honor, not being slothful and zeal, fervent in spirit, so on and so forth. So what this means, to put it in some other words, it is to think highly of others, to go above and beyond and to esteem each other with high regard, outdoing one another and showing honor. It becomes like a drug, an addiction that you want to honor. You want to lift that other person up. You don't want the spotlight and the attention on yourself. It's not about you. It's about Christ. But in honoring them, you honor Christ. You just can't do it enough. He says, be busy, have zeal for the things of God as though it's your full-time job. Don't be busybodies doing all these random things or nothing. But be busy with the things of God, serving the Lord. He is your Lord. Rejoice in what God is going to do and rejoice with godly hope. Godly hope is an assurance of what is going to happen. Jesus is going to return. The worldly hope is that he's going to return, fingers crossed. That's not the hope we're talking about. But with godly hope, that is assurance in what God said He's going to do, that He is going to do it. And when you know that God is going to come through, it stirs your affections to joy, not constant worldly sorrow. And He says, be patient. When things get bumpy in the family, don't be reactive, don't become a hot mess. Be patient. Be constantly prayerful, seeking the Lord in all that you do for one another. Think of this as constantly tapping into the eternal spring of God's love, wanting to be with him, needing his help, wanting his help, wanting to be energized and fueled and motivated by him. Instead of you just always have a conversation with yourself, you have a conversation with God and you allow God to lead you and direct you. And you give to the needs of one another. This is that serving the needs of the saints and showing hospitality in this time, especially in Rome. The church, as it would pass through, would need a place to stay. You couldn't just go, you know, buy a hotel room at La Quinta or something. You had to go stay somewhere. And so Paul is telling the church, be hospitable. Welcome in your family. Serve one another. Make sure they are never lacking in anything. Always make sure that your service to them is a nice, warm glass of God's love. So church, how do we grow in this warm devotion of love to one another, to to those of us who love Jesus? Whenever we gather, whether it's on Sunday mornings in the Sunday gathering, or in our community groups, I want us to consider two things. So I've been careful in considering how can I give our folks maybe one or two things that would really help them. So I want us to consider these two things. Our greeting and our leaving. Our greeting and our leaving. So I'm about to get baptized for 10 days in Western African culture. Next month, but in the process, I've been watching some videos, doing some training on cultural things. And I know some of you have more experience, Tina, than others. But what I did learn, which was really neat, was this culture of greeting and leaving. If you've ever heard of the saying, African time, or somebody's off working on African time or living on African time, When you understand the greeting and leaving piece of this culture, you understand then African time. When you come into this culture, when you come into this town or to somebody's home, it is culturally appropriate and necessary for everybody to greet everybody in the room. Now, (laughs) you're all looking across the room, man, we'd be here for six hours if I did that. Yeah, that's why it's called African time. Like, I'll be there at noon, then you show up at like 8 p.m. But you greet one another. And it's not just glad handing, it's actual engagement. It's asking probing questions about how things are going and how things are, uh, how you're doing and so forth. And apparently, in the Senegalese culture, they get kind of made fun of in West Africa because they even ask more questions than most West Africans. But then, so not only is that how you are to enter into a room or a situation but then as you leave you need to announce that you're leaving at least a couple of times before you actually leave and so you may have extended conversations and so forth but then eventually maybe the host will walk you out the house maybe walk you down the road a little bit until you are actually gone and this is to show that you value These folks, you value them around you, but also you value the one who's hosting you. And you're not just eager to run slave to the clock and your schedule and everything that you have going on. But you are focused on people first, relationships first in this culture, which is not Christian at all, but is Islamic honor and hospitality are huge markers of who they are. They do not, in any way, shape, or form, want to bring dishonor upon themselves, their homes, their communities, in any way. And so, this is the way that they live. And so, what I want to call us to do, and I think the Bible calls us to greet one another, to be hospitable. So, we're not just taking cultural cues here. But I want us to warmly greet the room. Whatever the room is. I want it to be a warm greeting. And here's some ways. Y'all need to hug each other. Y'all need to actually hug each other. Love each other. Show one another that there's some joy in actually coming together to be able to worship Jesus with you. Like, I'm so glad we're here. I love you. I love being present with you. I want to say, discover one another. Don't just ask about the weather and just small talk to get through the conversation and move on, but actually ask questions on how the other person is. Begin to peel the, the onion back. Like get to know their soul a little bit. You won't be able to discover everything in one little interaction, but you begin to see small layers in each time that you come to one another. You'll begin to know your brother. Know them by name and not just by name, by story. And lastly, encourage them. Say one thing to them that will build them up. Just one thing. This means that we have to be observant of one another. Often we're observant of ourselves, maybe our family unit. Maybe just our jobs or just whoever it is. But now it's forcing all believers for all time to be observant of all people. And to see, especially those who are in the household of God, what God is doing in them. And then we need to go and tell them and build them up. So warmly greet the room. Hug, discover, encourage. And then warmly leave the room hug again. <laughs> you can shake hands if you need to, whatever it is, but remind them it was a joy to be with them. If it was in their house, thank you so much for letting me be, be here. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for letting me sit with you on church at church on Sunday. I was so lonely, but thank you for being near me and loving me in that way. Be eager. So hug them again, be eager, remind them that you anticipate seeing them again. Not that you're just glad that they're finally out of your way so you can move on, but that there's a desire to see that other person again. That's what Paul did to the church of Thessalonica, eager to see them. And last, just tell them that you love them. I mean, look somebody in the face and just tell them that you love them and see what happens. It's so disarming. It's so disarming. And honestly, some of us don't get told we are loved enough. And we need to be the ones who are constantly telling each other that we love them. The church in Rome needed to look different than the world. One of those was this genuine love and affection, brotherly affection. And so this is true for all churches of all time. The honor of the Lord, his church, is reflected in her genuine love for one another. You want to be a church that stands out in Springfield and among the nations? Then we let our love for one another be genuine, full of brotherly affection. Warmth, I'll say, is not just limited to greeting and leaving, and it has many expressions. Just be aware don't miss the warmth of the body. Don't miss opportunity to be affectionate and warm towards others within the body. Make sure to be to have an eye out for this. And if we put these practices, uh, put these to practice among our church family, but also across the church family in the city, then what do you think will happen to the church in the city? What sort of people will we become? What do you think would change about the narrative of the church in our city when we love each other with deep brotherly affection? When we outdo one another in showing honor instead of constantly feeling like we have to compete against our next door neighbor church? What would happen if we laid ourselves down for the sake of serving one another so that God's people could have uh, God's word and worship and all of the things that it needs to be the body of Christ? And how might Jesus be made known and understood in our city? I think there are many churches that already have brotherly affection, but I want to continue to help push in our city that we reach out beyond our own walls and truly, genuinely lay ourselves down for one another. Like I was telling you earlier, it was an odd thing for me to give up our lead worship person for this. Why? Because believe it or not, and I'm sure you'll believe it. There's a fear that somebody will be snagged or stolen Right. When there's also a fear, well, if I don't don't have my best guy or whoever it is up on stage, then if we have guests come into our church, then they're going to wonder, man, this isn't very good. And that's what happens with preachers. They are unwilling to let other people fill the pulpit at times because they're afraid that if they don't preach, then that one person who comes in and sees that adequate preacher, which I'm reminded I'm adequate all the time, When they see this adequate preacher, maybe they won't want to come back. That's an ungodly, unhealthy fear that doesn't even come from scripture. We want to tear that down. So Paul gives us exhortations for the church rooted in genuine brotherly love. And now he wants to help us see how that same genuine love motivates us to be a family warmly devoted to bless those who hate Jesus. Verses 14 through 21. Let me read this again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, what is, to do what is honorable on the sight of all. but overcome evil with good. Paul primarily transitions us to focus on those outside the church in these verses. He doesn't ask us to love those outside the church here with brotherly affection. He doesn't say that in these verses, but the genuine love of God that we do have that warmth that is expressed does not act one way towards the church and becomes another way towards the lost. He's not saying be two faced here. It's the same love, genuine love motivation, because otherwise that would be pretentious or hypocritical. The church knows the lost are not brothers in the faith. But, however, that same genuine, warm love applies. The church's love towards the lost. If the lost were to come to faith in Jesus, should be the same non-hypocritical, non-pretentious love you showed them while they were against you and against Jesus. The lost who come to faith should not be confused or seeing two different definitions of love, but one consistent definition of love, even, even if it paradoxically abhors evil while simultaneously honoring and praying for those who practice evil. It is often confused that being warm means you're weak. Paul would never say that. I would never say that. Scripture never says that. God is loving and kind and merciful. He's not weak. Paul calls for this warm devotion of blessing on those who hate Jesus. He calls them to bless. That word bless in action means to it's being kind towards them in word. It's asking God to bestow a divine favor upon them. Not as though they are already Christians. They're not. We know that they hate Jesus, but this is the posture. This is the love. This is the behavior that we are to have. The Christian is to have towards those who hate Jesus, to be kind towards them and to Ask God to bestow divine favor upon them. Even if it's God save their souls so they might see. He's saying, Paul is, in both action and word, you are to take your root of genuine, warm, devoted love and both speak it and live it out as a blessing towards those who hate Jesus. And how do we do this? And that's where Paul lays out in verses 14 through 21. In doing this, blessing, do not curse, rejoice. And so what is he saying? Let me give it in other words. These verses. He's saying, seek divine favor for those who reject and attack and loathe and hate and despise the warmth of God's love. Who hate Jesus. Remembering first, right? Remembering first that God's love was genuinely warm and kind towards you while you were hostile towards him. Do not seek to curse. That is the opposite of blessing. The opposite in that the action is not being kind towards. And in word, it is an action of asking uh, divine harm upon a person. Paul wants the church to know God is going to handle the wicked. He's going to handle those who are persecuting you. Our blessing ultimately will be their condemnation. Our blessing them will be to them a condemnation, a heaping of coals upon their head. Celebrate, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate with those even outside the church and things that are worth celebrating. Don't celebrate sinful, evil things, but there are things you can celebrate. Show them that you don't think highly of yourself, that you turn your nose up to them, but that you are lowly as well. Show the world that you are not of this world, but that you also have an out of this world joy within you. You're the biggest advocate for rejoicing for the things that you see God may be doing. Even the graces that may come upon those who are inherently wicked and evil and don't love Jesus. Celebrate. Weep with those who weep. Show the world that you are not Superman. And that the God you serve is a God of comfort and grace. The Jesus you love and worship is a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief. As Christians, the the Christian is supposed to understand with clarity why the world is broken and why it is suffocating with sin. And it is wreaking havoc and damaging your community, your neighbors, your lost neighbors. And most of them have no idea. They're so blinded. They don't get it. Your weeping with them needs to be genuine. You want them to see and understand what is the real problem and that there is a real solution. There is a real healer. So you weep with them. And you live in harmony. This doesn't mean... Come alongside and be as the world. But be one in the community. Show your love for those that you live among. You are the greatest advocate again for harmony in a community. You don't compromise your faith. You don't back down on biblical beliefs and principles and values. But you are one who genuinely loves the people. You want to be around the people. You're not trying to run away from them. You're not scared of them, afraid of them. The world will see us turning the world upside down as the accusations are. And that's what they saw in Thessalonica. Here's the apostle who comes turning the world upside down. But they should also see, as Paul had instructed the church in Thessalonica, that they are to be a people who are contributing to society, not just mooching off of society. That's why he tells them in chapter three to work, to live quietly. To be those who show that even though the city may hate you, that you're still loving the city. Be a peacemaker. Understanding the peace we bring can cause unrest among a lost and dying world. The world does not love the peace of Christ. But we show the world that the vision of the gospel is a society in which all turn to the Lord and worship him. That idea of perfect oneness and wholeness. That's the idea of peace or shalom in scripture. Can you imagine, envision this entire neighborhood worshiping and loving Jesus? That's the sort of vision that we are to have. That we are the peacemakers. We are the ones in the streets advocating for peace. A right peace. A godly peace. And this is what the church shows the world that we are a city within a city, a nation within a nation, a holy priesthood, a nation of believers, a people of peace, oneness, wholeness, while at the same time desiring our lost neighbors to know Jesus. And this blessing shows itself when evil that you abhor is committed against you. And instead of reacting in the flesh, Paul says, you become patient in spirit and you take time. He says to give thought. This is so different than me. I am very reactionary in the moment, emotional. That's how I can tend to be in the flesh. But Paul's saying, slow down. Some of you are slow and I appreciate it because I learn how to be patient and slow in reacting to certain things. But in this, in this instance, talking about persecution and those in the world coming against you saying, give thought, respond then with a desire to show honor. The world wants to curse and tear you down and wants to bait you into the fight, wants to give opportunity for the devil to really disqualify your witness and your testimony, but don't give into the bait. Instead, turn around and bless and honor. Because the name of Jesus matters more than our own personal feelings, emotions, and reputation. It's not about us. It's about him. And when God says, vengeance is mine, we believe him. He is not giving lip service in the old Testament. He's not giving lip service in the new Testament. It's not why hope he does this. No, he is going to do it. He is doing it. He will do it. The Lord will handle all of the injustice, all of the persecution, all of the evil that you just can't seem to stand. God is going to handle it. You instead slow down and honor and bless. I will do what I do. You do what I've called you to do. And we are to bless then by feeding, giving water, giving clothes to those, even those who hate us are spewing venom towards us. We serve them not to just say, hey, well, God said, this is just heaping coal on your head. So I'm going to give you food. No, there's a genuine love. I know you hate me. I know you hate Jesus. I know you want me to be cursed and die, but I don't want you to be cursed and die. I want you to know about the bread of life. Here's a sandwich. I want you to know about the living water. Here's a cold cup of water. I want you to know about the righteousness that just covers you completely. Here's a shirt off my back. This is so that the genuine love of Christ would go in the community and be without blame. What can the world say to that? They're going to kill you to die is gain. What does it matter? You're honoring Christ. He will judge and he will judge them for how they respond to us. Right? We have to understand When Paul was rebuked in Acts on his way to Damascus, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was ascended at the right hand of the Father. So was Paul directly persecuting Jesus? Yes, by way of the church. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the world comes against you and persecutes you, don't take it personal. It's not about you. They're persecuting Jesus. They're hating Jesus. You love them. The Lord will hold them accountable for that. And the Lord will also hold you accountable for actually serving. So how can we increase and abound in our devotion towards those in blessing those who hate Jesus? Again, some of these overlap with the church. So I think there are behaviors that go in and outside of the body, but I would say two things, a warm presence and warm words, warm presence and warm words. I know I've said hug twice now, and that made a lot of you uncomfortable, but understand, I know there's an amen, but look, Jesse's hugging people when they come in the door now. Look, if Jesse is hugging people, y'all know you're going to be hugging soon and I'm going to be hugging you. Everybody's going to get hugs. But there's something about this warm presence or touch. We all know and understand the inappropriate ways of touching. But a right godly way, a hand on the shoulder, a handshake, a hug, a gentle pat on the back goes a long way to communicate to one another that you love one another. God made us physical beings, not just spiritual beings or emotional or intellectual, but even physical beings. Consider then. Look, I didn't ask you all to give each other a holy kiss. That would be biblical. So understand, that's touching on the cheek with your lips. Not going to do it. But anyways, think about... Our community, if you're not, if you're new to Springfield, um, I haven't, I haven't looked at the stats in the last handful of years, but we are a leading county and city in domestic violence, meth use, abuse, child abuse. And we're, the city is 160,000, maybe a quarter to half million in the surrounding area. And we historically compete with St. Louis County. There's a lot of bad touching around here. How healing and soothing would it be to have a godly interaction? A hug, a warm hug, a hand on the shoulder, just looking someone in the eye saying, I love you. You're not so bad that I'm not willing to be near you or even put my hands on you or even hold your hands or pray, lay hands on you and pray. You're not so filthy that I wouldn't do that. And I would say posture is a second thing and how we have a warm presence. Our body language means something. Sometimes people can tell when we're eager to get out of the room. When we're just tired of them talking and just need to move on and so forth. But they can also tell in our body language, when we're poising ourselves with arrogance or ego, speaking down to somebody versus lowering ourselves, wanting to hear, posturing ourselves in such a way that, Hey, we're glad you're here. I've been told. Okay. So two seasons in Senegal, uh, Hot and scorching hot. So I'm just going in the hot season, which is going to be like 90 to 100 versus like 120. So when we go, we're told even that when people are inviting us to, to talk, they will give up the shade to have us sit in the shade. And they will sit in the sun and stay there and interact with us however long they need to. That, that physical posturing <laughs> and giving up of self. Because they don't want us to run off. They want us to stay. Courage. Touch. Posture. Courage. As I mentioned, many confuse warmth with weakness. But Paul calls us to be warm. But to do something the world cannot do. And that is bless. And it takes courage. It takes courage. When everybody wants to move away from the haters and those who are threatening us. And in some situations, it's time to go. You got to pack up and leave. I get it. But the gospel calls us to move towards it, not to run away from it. And to not move towards it and pick up the sword like Peter did. But to move towards it with the sword, the word of God and the love of God. And our words should be cutting them with blessing. There's no fear of losing Christian. What do you have to lose in this world? You already have Christ. The believer has everything you need. Even when we were hostile, Jesus moved towards us. Warm words. So warm presence, warm words. Again, love. Tell people you love them. It's hard to hate somebody you genuinely love and tell that you love. Maybe consider the words that you say, ask yourself this question. If I were to run into X, Y, and Z person, what are the words, right? If there's that word bubble thing where you can see how many words you say to somebody and what are the words that you say the most, what would be that word that just pops out the most that you say towards them or about them? Would love be up there? thankfulness warm words love thankfulness tell someone what they do matters it is easy to constantly tell the lost and dying world how much they're evil and wicked because they don't have christ well yeah we know this but what if we showed the genuine love of Christ and just telling somebody, hey, thank you for what you do. I'm not saying thank them for sinful, evil things, but actually looking at them and just overcoming evil with good. Saying, hey, I saw what you did. I just want to let you know that I see you and I'm thankful for what, you, what you've done. I'm thankful for how you've interacted with those folks, how you've helped here, how you've done that, how you've been a presence. Just love that about you. What are they going to do? Insult us because we're aware of them more than we're aware of ourselves. And tone. So in thinking about warm words, love, thankfulness, and tone. It's important how we deliver our words and our actions. If somebody in your community, maybe, Who doesn't know Christ. They're in the hospital because their child is dying from cancer. You're not going to go in there with a harsh rebuking tone. Telling them, you better tell that boy about Jesus or he's going to die and go to hell. You're going to mourn with them. And tell them you love them. You're going to want to be invited into that circle to care for them cuz you're genuine. You're not cold. You love people cuz Christ loves you. Even Paul speaks of tone in Galatians chapter 4 verse 20. He wanted to be with the church so that he could show them in his tone his love for them. He wanted to confirm their faith but he couldn't be there. There's a time to stand firm. And the time to be strong in the faith and times where you have to respond with some sort of strength and force. But the, that strength and force is one that is motivated with the love of Christ. Like one must not be concerned with tone when yelling at a stranger to get off the tracks when the train is coming. So at times there's a need for tone and words to match the occasion. The one who yells at the stranger to get off the tracks is not motivated by evil hatred, but a genuine love, right? The spirit leads us to discern how we're to express our love, but it may be that the world has no, but may it be that the world has no accusation against us, except that we genuinely love. Let me illustrate it one more time like this. And I know we're at an hour. A number of years back when we were, up in the grant beach neighborhood, right across the street from our church, there was a couple, a guy and a girl arguing. It was nasty. I was in the parking lot. And he had got to a point where he turned to go punch her. And all I could do in that moment was I said, oh no, you're not. (laughs) So he stopped before he swung on her. And we met in the middle of the street. And I was like, okay, here we go. And I stepped in. I'm not telling you this, like bragging on me. I wasn't expecting this at all. But I stepped in to take the fight from her. I don't know this lady. I don't know if she loves Jesus or not. I ended up talking him down. And later on, I would see him. Because I worked there, hung out there, all these sorts of things. And I would try to see how he's doing. We'd interact every now and then he knew ultimately that I cared for him, but he wanted nothing ultimately to do with the Lord. That's what I'm getting at. We can be strong. We can abhor what is evil while at the same time being genuinely loving with the love of Christ. What a difficult challenge for the church in Rome, not only dealing with external differences, but internal What Paul is saying in this chapter is consistent with the gospel, and thus the church has a responsibility to consider if the gospel is truly what they believe, and if so, then their lives must begin changing and looking the part. So I say this in conclusion. I would not, if that police officer from 20 years ago were to enter the room, would not know who that person was, and they would not know who I was. But I know this. I try to get my money back. I'm just kidding. There may be philosophical or theological differences that would make us disagree on whether or not I should have a ticket. But what I know is that I would be held accountable to what Paul is charging me to be as part of the church. Warmly devoted to one another. The theologian says the Christian experience is not one person against the world, but one great family living out together the mandate to care for one another. The elders pray that the warmth that we have received from God be the same warmth we express to one another and to the world. And So may we be a people who are seen both by the church and the surrounding community as a people who are warmly devoted to Jesus.